You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, for uh, those of you who are visitors from the faraway land of Farfar, um, we have been studying together these Sunday evenings in the opening chapters of the Bible, and we've come this evening to Genesis chapter 3, and I want us to read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. The closing verse, chapter 2, is uh, very much a bridge, as you'll see in a moment. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. It may be of significance that the use in verse 4 and verse 5 are all you plural. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate of it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We're often still told as Christians that uh, we are out of date because we are living in what sometimes is still referred to as the postmodern world. And one of the characteristics of what people think of when they use that expression is that in contrast to the old world in which there was a grand narrative, that is, the narrative of Christianity, and in contrast to the modern age which had its own kind of narrative, And that was a tremendous assurance that man was the measure of all things, the characteristic of modern life, as we would say, or postmodern life, as other people might say, is that there is no grand narrative. There is no meta-narrative. There is no big story. David mentioned this morning this whole question of personal identity. Who am I? And actually it's fairly clear that if there is no big story, then each individual has to create 
his or her own story, and therefore his or her own identity. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that the jigsaw puzzle of life becomes exceedingly difficult if the box has not contained the pieces that run along the circumference of the picture. Each one is left, and more and more uh, we see people like this in a, a thousand different ways, trying to make sense of the pieces that they have been poured out for them from a jigsaw puzzle box that doesn't have actually all the pieces that are needed if I'm going to be able to see where my life fits. And it is the biblical contention, the Christian teaching, that of course it's impossible to know who you are unless you understand what life is for, and impossible to understand what life is for unless you come to understand something of the teaching of these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. It makes all the difference in the world, as is now so abundantly clear, that we believe in the first place that we live in a creation and not an accident, and that this creation is the work of an infinitely gracious, kind, and good God who made all things well and good in His generosity, and that we do have a place in this big story. We are made, as Genesis 1, 26 and 27 teaches us, we are made as the image and likeness of God. Our very raison d'etre is that we are made for God, to know God, love God, serve God, and have fellowship with God. And that our calling is to have dominion. Our calling, in this sense, is to explore and employ and use for His glory absolutely everything that God has made. We are living in the 21st century and uh, many scientists, as uh, many anatomists and physicians will tell you, we know next to nothing about everything. So there is a world to explore. And this is the, the joy of being a Christian believer, whatever our sphere may be, that the Lord who has made us as His image and His good creation has given us work to do, minds to use, hands to employ, places to go, including, yes, the moon. And so, as uh, we saw last time, God not only did all of these things, but He made us for relationship with one another, male and female. You notice uh, that the Bible doesn't say He made two different people for sex, but he made two different kinds of people for relationship with one another, companionship with one another. What an amazing thing it is in the modern world 
that your sexuality, as David was saying this morning, is the definitive part about your life. C.S. Lewis, I think, years ago in the 1950s wrote, if a man from the moon came and visited what was happening and, and went back and was asked, what is the, what's the symbol of their religion? He would have said, it's a phallic symbol. They're obsessed with pieces of their anatomy. And of course, that's inevitable when we lose sight of what God has made us for. Instead of looking upwards and outwards to His glory and rejoicing in our creation and our relationships, isn't it very interesting, some artist somewhere may have done this, that the, the image of modern man is that he or she is obsessed with little biological parts. No wonder if we've lost the big picture, we end up looking at tiny little elements in the small picture. And that raises the question, so what has gone wrong? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Humanists, secular humanists, atheists, agnostics, eh? virtually everyone you meet, if you say, is the world how it should be, will answer, it shouldn't be like this. You know anyone who lives in this world who has never said, it shouldn't be like this. But you see, when you don't have the right pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, all you can do is shrug your shoulders and say, pal, it is what it is. There's no should be or shouldn't be. There is no big picture. So, of course, if you're serious in your intellectual convictions, that leads to personal, spiritual, moral, and societal chaos because uh, you're spending all your time, and more and more our lawmakers are necessarily spending all their time making laws to try to get the thing to work because the law of God's purposes has been as it were, despised in the hearts of men and women. And there is no answer to the question, well, if this isn't what ought to be, what ought to be? The very notion that something ought to be indicates that there is a design, a plan for the way things were meant to be. And that, of course, is where this third chapter of the book of Genesis comes in. Many of you know the story of uh, G.K. Chesterton, great uh, figure in the late 19th, 20th century, um, humorous man, man committed to great Christian orthodoxies, actually, and uh, a witty individual, big man, huge man. Uh, so huge that uh, some uh, clever woman said to him in the First World War, Sir, you should be out at the front, meaning he should be uh, out there fighting. He said, Madam, if you will just turn and take the side view, you will see I am out at the front. <laughs> and Chesterton, uh, according to the mythology, although he certainly said things like this is supposed to have written a letter to the editor of the Times when there was a discussion on the question, what's wrong with the world? 
And uh, what he wrote was, Dear Sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. But actually, the truth is bigger, even bigger than G.K. Chesterton. And it's the big story into which the little stories of how badly wrong things have gone in the world. It's the big story that we are told here in Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to look at several of the emphases that are brought out in these opening verses. The first is this, and uh, actually, in a sense, God leaves at this stage in the Bible, God leaves a kind of shroud of mystery over exactly what is happening here. But the very first thing that we notice in these verses is the presence of an enemy of God. We're given no real explanation as to the origin of this enemy. We are given no real explanation within these verses even of the identity of this enemy. But right at the beginning of this chapter, we are told the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, actually those opening words are very interesting. Usually in Bible narratives, very little comment is made on the actors in the narrative. The story line itself draws you in and allows you to make your own judgments. But uh, right up front here, there is a divine judgment. The serpent was more wily. The serpent was more skillful. Or in the New International Version, the serpent was more crafty. Now, that's a, that's a little signal from the storyteller. Watch this. This is the thing to look out for. Don't let your eyes drift. Don't get so caught up in what kind of serpent is this that your eyes drift from this notion. This is the quintessence of craftiness and uh, of subtlety. It's clear to us from the rest of Scripture that this is some kind of embodiment of Satan, of the evil one. Right away at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where many of the answers are found, like our old school textbooks, we are told of the evil one, Satan, the devil, and he is described as a great red dragon and identified with the serpent of the Garden of Eden almost as though he has changed color and grown large out of the multitude of victories that he has won since the days of Genesis chapter 3. And so there is no doubt from a whole Bible point of view that there is a dark and sinister and personal power of which this serpent is the embodiment and his intention is to lead the man and the woman astray from the Lord. And uh, it's very interesting, actually, the word that's used for 
serpent here is related to the Hebrew word for bronze. And uh, it may be, you remember when Moses made the bronze serpent, the serpent was bronze, shining as a kind of echo of this serpent uh, being a, sh a shining one. That may be the very thing Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, where he speaks about Eve being deceived. And then, a little later in the chapter, you remember how he says that Satan often appears as an angel of light. And while we stand outside of this narrative, and we know this narrative, and especially we know where this narrative ends up, there is clearly from the way in which Eve is drawn into conversation with this serpent, there is something extraordinarily attractive about the serpent. I'm actually reminded even as I speak of a, of a BBC program I was invited to take part in and the, the person who phoned me, he, he, his, his accent was so educated and gracious and it was going to be such a privilege to have me on the program. As soon as the program started, not only did his attitude change, his very accent changed, and I thought, I am listening here to the hiss of the serpent, and I've been drawn in. And something of this order is taking place here. Eve, you remember, says later on in this chapter, it's repeated in the Scriptures, she was deceived. Because, of course, he doesn't appear here as some flame-throwing, ugly, red dragon. He actually, fascinatingly, appears here as a theologian. You know, Martin Luther once said that religion has never been corrupted except by reverend doctors. And you can almost, you can almost hear it. Let's you and I discuss some theology. Oh, you're interested in theology. I didn't know that uh, there's a serpent theology. Oh, yes, my dear. Um, you remember, uh, what's the Disney movie called? You know, and the snake and the eyes, trust in me. Well, you see, uh, he often appears as an angel of light. And the first thing we need to learn is the presence of an enemy of God. Second thing is this, and this is, uh, this, is, this is a unique story, but there are many things in this story that are very typical of the way in which the evil one works. And you notice that, for in the second place, his attack on the Word of God. It's actually more subtle than it looks, but there is an attack on the Word of of God. The crafty serpent is actually subversive. And uh, it's interesting to notice what he says. Um, did God really say? I can't help falling into an upper-class accent uh, mentally when I read this. I say, old chap, you know, did God, let's, let's just get this clear, did God really say that you are not to eat from any tree in the garden? 
And you see what he's doing. He's seeking to inject doubt about the clarity of God's Word. Now, in a moment, he will not only inject doubt about its clarity, he will deny its truthfulness and authority. But you see, she might have recognized that if he'd begun there. Satan doesn't usually... Satan is not as obvious as it seems. Satan appears as an angel of light. Let's say, are you quite sure he said that? And you see what, you see what he's doing. He is injecting a sense of being destabilized. Often that kind of thing happens. Uh, of course, I know you believe this, but it doesn't really mean that, does it? That's not really very clear. How many people have you spoken to who have said, well, there's this opinion and there's that opinion, and none of it is clear? And it's interesting to notice that this is uh, very, it's very kind of uh, magnetic. Because you'll notice that Eve responds with a kind of mixture of half-truth and confusion. She says in response, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And it's these words, I think, that indicate to us that Eve is now being drawn in to the real focus of the serpent's attack on the Word of God. Because, uh, do you notice how she has just ever so slightly changed what God had said, distorted what God had said? She's added something to it. I don't know that one can be dogmatic about this, but I think it's striking. She adds something to it. God said, don't eat it. Andy said, don't touch it. Now, you see what's happening here. What Eve is adding is a further restriction that safeguards the first restriction. And the subtlety of that may not be apparent at first, but what that subtlety characterizes is that God is a God who he actually makes restrictions and more restrictions. And it's exactly what the serpent has been seeking to inject into her mind. God is a God who makes restrictions. And he's restricting you. And he's setting her up, really. Um, I remember as a little boy, uh, learning how to prove to people that they're not here. It's very easy. You say to them, are you in Australia? They say, no. Well, are you in New York? And they say, no. You say, are you in Hamburg? They say, no. They say, well, if you're not in any of these places, you must be elsewhere, mustn't you? Well, yes. And then you say, if you're elsewhere, you can't possibly be here. How does it work? Been able to do it for almost 60 years. And you see, this is what is happening here. And so it's interesting that Eve then also adds, we're not to eat it, we're not to touch it, or uh, if we touch it, we might die. That's what she's really saying. That's not what God had said. 
God had said in the most emphatic form, if you eat it, then dying you will die. That's how the language goes. Dying you will die. It's not a, it's not a possibility. It's a, it's a divine statement that is irrevocable, that neither can be changed nor broken. It is an absolute certainty. And you see what's happening. Um, she is slowly being weaned away from thinking about this tree in terms of what God has actually said about it to the notion that uh, God is a God who restricts and God is a God who maybe and maybe not will keep his word. And then the serpent goes for the jugular, doesn't he? He says to Eve, well, you're beginning to understand that what God is really doing is preventing you from becoming like Him. He's preventing you from becoming like Him. The reason God is so restrictive on your life, He says, is because God knows something that he hasn't disclosed to you. When you eat of this tree, he says, verse 5, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Now that's the jugular, because what the serpent is really saying is this. Uh, you've been misled about the character of God. You've thought God was good and God was generous and God was gracious. That's all a smokescreen. God is actually restrictive. God is jealous of you experiencing your potential. God does not want you to be who you really are. And if you take the fruit of this tree and eat of it, then you will be like God knowing good and evil. And she stretches out and she takes the fruit of the tree and she forgets they were already like him. They'd been made as his image. She'd forgotten who she was. She'd been made, Genesis 1.26, as his image and likeness, the male version and the female version. That's, that is the absolute core of who she was. And he had dislocated her from it. And if she had walked past the tree and said, about this tree, God said, show me that you love me and you trust me just because I've said this. Don't touch that tree's fruit in order to eat it. Actually, it's very clear, I think I said this before, nothing different about this tree from any of the other trees. It's described in identical terms to the other trees. That's why it was such a good test and challenge that would lead to greater and greater insight and stronger and stronger obedience. It would just be a matter of instinct. It was an ugly fruit. 
then there would be nothing in joyful trusting in the Heavenly Father and His Word just because He said so, but because I didn't like the look of the fruit. And uh, you don't grow in obedience just by following your instincts, but by yielding to the Word of the living God. And the tragedy of their lives was that she was being led to this. It's just not fair. Listen to this. It's just not fair. He won't let me be God. He won't let me be God of my own life. Wow. That's in the newspapers every day, isn't it? That's in the political discussions every day. I want a God who will let me be the God of my own life and not be in my face. And the tragedy? The tragedy is that she lost her freedom. She lost her dignity. She lost her fellowship with God. And perhaps most obviously, she lost true womanhood and femininity and no longer lived as the person she was made to be. Do you know, I think that's one of the most glorious things you discover when you're brought into the new humanity in Jesus Christ. You, you know, I've not met many Christians who would even have uh, thought of denying that when they came to Christ, they felt, I've come home. I've discovered who I was meant to be, of course, because the gospel is a recovery operation to bring you back in measure in this world and fully in the world to come to what you were always destined to be, to be happy that you're not God because you know what kind of God He is and you've learned to love Him and trust Him. So, the presence of an enemy of God and the attack on the Word of God and, of course, the disobedience of the children of God. As she looks at this tree, which, as I say, is described in the same terms the other trees were described, it was good to look at, and that fruit certainly looked tasty. And uh, she disobeys, and she stumbles, and she falls. Now, what, what's, what's, what's going on here? Well, this is a unique moment in history, but it's a repeated moment in our personal lives, isn't it? She looked at the tree and she interpreted it in terms of what she could see, in terms of what, instead of in terms of what she had heard. Now listen, temptation always works that way. We are drawn in by what we see instead of seeing things in terms of what we have heard from God's Word. Let me put it very simply like this. In the Christian life, God means you to see through your ears and not through your eyes. He means you to see everything in the light of His interpretation his explanation of it, 
not in terms of your own limited and now confused ability. And uh, that's uh, a very obvious lesson, isn't it? Over and over again. And so she tells us later on in the passage that she was deceived. But an interesting thing, isn't it, that in the Bible, that's the only thing the Bible says about Eve. She said she was deceived. All the focus of the Bible's attention on what happens here is in Adam. Isn't that interesting? What Paul picks up, Romans 5, 12 to 21, 1 Corinthians 15, is that the real disaster takes place in Adam. So where was Adam? Well, maybe he was standing beside her. Those plural yous, see, listening to all this? She takes the fruit of the tree, and then we're told, almost as it were, without a, without a pause, and she gives some of it to, to Adam. So, so what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Adam was uh, created here to be her guardian, and uh, he was completely silent, said absolutely nothing. I imagine, although it's not clear in the text, he said nothing because he loved her so much. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in a way, since God had said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die, die spiritually through disobedience and eventually die physically through judgment, that Adam, who was not deceived, made a choice. And he chose the woman he loved with the prospect of death rather than the God who had made him and given him the prospect of life. And, um, you know, if you love somebody, that actually might seem to be a very tough choice. And uh, that's why it really is all about Adam. Why, why does the serpent go to the woman? In ye ancient days, Christians almost to a man and it was because men were writing it that they said this partly, said if, if Serpent had gone to the Serpent had gone to the man in the first place, Luther says the man would have stood on his head and said, Get out of my way, I know what you're doing, go home. I am not so sure about that. Um, in fact I'm very not sure about that. Um, so what's going on here? You need to understand that the woman was Satan's best way of destroying the man because she was God's best gift to him and his most beloved treasure. If you're married, you know that. If you're near to being married, you know that. If you want to be married, you know that. The best way to bring Adam down was to face him with the ultimate horrendous choice of the woman he could see and loved and the God he loved but couldn't see. Actually, it's true, I think, in Christian service and in Christian ministry that a man who is in Christian ministry, his ministry will rarely rise above the level of his wife's devotion to it. 
because at our, the one we love is our strongest point and just as in all areas of life often our strongest point and our weakest point are joined together at the hip and that's what Satan is doing he's bringing about disobedience among the children of God and instead of becoming like him they lose their fellowship with him they lose their true humanity and femininity and as the passage goes on we'll see they almost lost their marriage as well all for all for this physically a piece of fruit actually the desire to be masters of their own lives and here's the critical thing the loss of the sense that God is perfectly kind and good and generous to his people. And that's what Satan was really after. And he's still after it. He's after it in the lives of the ungodly. In the, in the ungodly, the thing most to be feared in destroying your life is what? giving your life to God. Isn't that true? The thing most to be feared. Why would people be so angry with those of us who believe in God and believe in Christ, never done anyone very much harm, and when you take us together, have done a great deal? Why are people so outraged and angry when in social occasions we just pop up with the name of the Lord Jesus? It's because he's the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus means they're not Lord. And they believe in their confused and darkened thinking that the thing that would most destroy joy and pleasure and happiness and fulfillment in their lives is giving themselves through Jesus Christ to the God who designed them in the first place. It's actually it's very easy to test. And it's really true. And so... This is a reality in the present day, and I think I may say it's a reality that is not completely dissolved by conversion and regeneration. I think in my life of ministry, many, many, many people who have sat with me in an office or in a coffee shop, who have been Christians, when you begin to scratch under the surface, they're not really wholly and absolutely convinced that God unreservedly wants the best for them and everything he does in their lives is the best for them. Uh, you remember how the parable of the prodigal son ends with the elder brother. Actually, that's really what that parable is all about, isn't it? That Luke 15 begins by telling us Jesus is telling a three-part parable against certain people. And those certain people are exemplified in the older brother who had been in the father's house all these days. And as the NIV so brilliantly translates, 
what he says when his younger brother gets the party. He says, all these years, I've been slaving for you, and you never gave me a party. And you remember later on in Luke 19, four chapters later on, Luke tells the story of Jesus and the minas that are given out to the various people, and one of them comes back and he says, the master says, so what profit did you make? He says, I didn't make any profit. I put it down in the ground because I knew you would be back to ask, where's my mina? And I knew you were a hard man. That's exactly where the vast percentage of the population is in relationship to God. And it is also the lingering residue of our fallenness that remains in the hearts of Christians that so often holds us back from running into his arms and saying to him, I know that you are good and you are good towards me through and through and that you love me with an everlasting love. Now that leads us to the fourth thing here. And that finally is the consequence of their rebellion against God. Let me just touch on this before we close. The, the woman took the fruit, verse 6. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. What does that mean? It means that they lived in blissful, joyful communion with one another and fellowship with God that uh, they could be completely transparent with one another. They lived in a glorious communion that was both vertical and horizontal. They were like uh, little children playing in the paddling pool who don't know they're naked because, well, life's too much fun. And now they realize there's, there's a kind of shiver of shame goes down them. They realize they've made a misstep. Their eyes are opened. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that so devilish? I would think that beside Christian people who have needed that lingering suspicion of God dissolved, Next, in terms of order, in my experience, has been men, and it has, in my experience, largely been men with their heads in their hands in the seat in my office saying, I don't know what came over me. I don't know why I did it. And I know the way in which they've been led in by Satan into, into the forbidden fruit. And then he's thrown them over, hasn't he? He doesn't really, he doesn't care a rap about Eve's happiness. And so when it's all over, what he said will bring you joy. He now says, I'm finished with you. Everything I planned has come about. And uh, I'm going to leave you now. And here they are crying out, as it were, Oh God, what came over me? 
I don't know why I did it. And you see, the result of all this is that they're, they're stripped of protection. That's the, the word naked is used that way later on in the Bible, uh, being, being stripped naked in the kind of metaphorical way we use it when, when someone has no defenses, no protection, senses that uh, all the protection in which they formerly trusted has been taken away from them. And, and this is so pathetic, isn't it? What do they do? They, they go to the fig tree to try and cover their shame cover their sin. And it is so awfully tragic. That's what people do, isn't it? People who, who are, who are uh, full of sin and shame find a thousand ways that are altogether inadequate of persuading themselves that they're not really full of sin and of seeking to hide themselves from the all-seeing eye of God, so that life becomes a series of defense mechanisms, which actually is the reason for some of the attacks that some of you will experience during the course of the week. They're simply defense mechanisms of those who discover in your presence, despite all you may feel about how much further you need to go in the Christian life, they feel in your presence shame and nakedness because of their sinfulness. And they will do anything, including attacking you, in order to defend themselves from the penetrating God, pulling off the layers and bringing them into His presence and saying, now let us reason together. There's one last thing. It's this. It's very interesting how the whole Bible story is about the first man, Adam, and the second man and last Adam, Jesus Christ, and about their similarities. That's why Jesus is referred to as the second man and the last Adam. There is a similarity, and the similarity is this, that both men chose the woman they loved, even if it cost them their death. Both men chose the woman they loved, even if it cost them their death. From heaven he came and sought us to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought us, and for our lives he died. And the other is the dissimilarity. They were both brought to a tree. And the first reached out and took the fruit of the tree in death because of disobedience. And the second reached out and took the fruit of the tree because of our disobedience in obedience to his heavenly Father in order to take our place, die our death, bear our sins, and restore us to what God ever intended us to be. My dear friends, when, 
when your life is set within this small part of this great story, you begin to know who you are. If you're a Christian, you now know who you are. And even better, you know what you're going to be in the presence of the Heavenly Father who does all things well. This is, this is the light in which everything becomes clear. And actually, without him and without this, we wander about in the darkness. I wonder if, you, I wonder if you're here because of someone who's a Christian. And you've wondered what makes them tick. And you've thought it was a very small thing. And now you're beginning to see that this is the grand narrative that makes everything make sense. And without it, nothing makes sense. And it's the grand narrative which, when it leads to Christ and your faith in Jesus Christ, is a grand narrative that will make the rest of your life a most marvelous story of grace. Well, wherever we are, let's turn our hearts to Christ this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for its truth, for the wonder of its light shining on our lives, and for the warmth of your love as we find our hearts strangely warmed through the teaching of your word, as though you yourself were opening your word to us, which you have promised to do by your Holy Spirit. Oh, do your gracious work in our lives, we pray. Restore us to your likeness. Enable us happily to live as your creatures who have been made as your image. Save us, we pray, from any desire to play God with our own lives. We give ourselves to you with thankfulness. Pray you would bless us in the course of this week. Keep this picture in our minds that will help us to see our place in the jigsaw puzzle of history and of our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.